Welcome to the Pearson Center's uh, webinar number 32 since the start of the pandemic, a conversation today on the U.S. election and how it affects Canada. My name is Andrew Cardoso and I'm president of the Pearson Center. As many of you will know, the Pearson Center is a progressive think tank and our ongoing project this year is called COVID and Beyond, recognizing that we have a lot of issues to address as we plan for the recovery and rebuilding that is proving to be slow and long. This is an important time to build back better, to reimagine Canada and think big. Just briefly on the format for this evening, I wanna tell you that we have a panel discussion that'll last about 40 minutes, and then we will have time for Q&A with you, the audience. So please send in your questions uh, using the question box uh, during, during the hour. We will end promptly at 9 p.m. I want to take a moment to acknowledge two important sustaining sponsors who have made these webinars possible. They are the Building Trades, Canada's Building Trades Unions and the Canadian Association of Firefighters. Thank you for your support. We have an amazing panel today to address that US election and Canada. I will do very brief intros, just highlighting some of the issues that affect, that are relevant to today's discussion. Mary Scott Greenwood, known as Scotty, is president of the Canadian American Business Council, the leading binational business organization that fosters interaction between the private and public sectors in both countries. A former American diplomat, she spent four years as chief of staff at the U.S. Embassy in Canada, having been appointed to that position in 2001 by President Bill Clinton. Notably, during this period, she received the State Department's Meritorious Honor Award for Innovative Outreach Program to U.S. governors and Canadian premiers to foster cooperation on issues of mutual concern, certainly a model that was used very much in the lead-up to the renegotiation of NAFTA. She's also a partner at Crestview Strategy. Professor Magambi Jouet is author of Exceptional America, What Divides <clears throat> Americans from the World and from Each Other, he teaches law at McGill University, law, Faculty of Law. Before joining McGill in 2018, he taught at Stanford Law School in California. He's a member of the New York Bar, where he previously represented many indigent prisoners in homicide cases and the war on drugs in Manhattan and the Bronx. He studied law at Northwestern University in Chicago, and received his PhD at Université Paris-le-Sorbonne. Professor Melissa Haussmann is a professor of political science at Carleton University. She specializes in U.S. politics and comparative politics of Canada and the U.S. and, is, and in comparative gendered politics of reproduction health, reproductive health care. She, she received her PhD at Duke University in North Carolina and taught at Clark University and Suffolk University in Massachusetts before joining Carleton. Rob Oliphant is Member of Parliament for Don Valley West. He's Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of Foreign Affairs and is a member of the House of Commons Committee on Foreign Affairs and International Trade. You may be aware that he is an ordained minister in the United Church of Canada and has served congregations across the country. He earned his doctorate from the Chicago Theological Seminary at the University of Chicago in 2008. And Rob, you will forgive me if I say this, if anyone today speaks alternative facts by mistake, they will be able to get divine dispensation from Reverend Oliphant at the end of the session. I'm moderating our panel today. Uh, I'm delighted to tell you, back by popular demand, is Brian Gallant, a member of the Pearson Center Advisory Board you will know that he's the 33rd Premier of New Brunswick, where he interacted extensively with American federal and state governments and the business sector. He's currently CEO of the Canadian Centre for the Purpose of the Corporation at Navigator, Navigator Limited. Mr. Galland, la parole est à vous. Merci beaucoup, Andrew. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us. Nous vous remercions mille et une fois pour votre présence. Uh, ici ce soir, uh, we are very, very lucky to have wonderful panelists and, of course, a very interesting and fascinating topic. Uh, as was mentioned, you can put your questions 
and comments in the question box. Uh, we'll try to get to as many as uh, we possibly can. I would say around the 40 minute mark uh, on the hour, we'll, uh, we'll make sure to try to start uh, to go through them. And if needed, we'll do a lightning round. I'm sure the panelists are all ready and uh, keen to answer your questions. Uh, we really have, as, as you know, um, uh, for those who have watched before, a format where we want a free-flowing conversation, but we have some questions, of course, to get things started. And we have wonderful panelists and four of them, so we're going to try to go maybe one answer per question, but I certainly told, and, and I'll repeat now, that the panelists can chime in at any point uh, if they want to add something else to what was said. So let's dive right into it, uh, because we, have cert we certainly have lots to talk about. So the first question will go to Melissa. Uh, Melissa, given the results of uh, the Senate, the House, and the presidency, uh, who are the winners and who are the losers of the U.S. election? Uh, normally, we ask that question metaphorically. In this case, we may have to sort of uh, answer it literally first, but we'd be very curious as to what your sense is of who can say that they've won, who could uh, feel like they've lost after the results were in. Well, um, I think we know who feels they've lost. Um, they're the ones filing the court challenges and conducting a huge march from Texas to Washington, apparently on Saturday. I would say that the forces of progressivism feel like we won, um, being a voting American myself. Um, clearly, Biden got a lot more votes, um, somewhere between four and five million right now. Um, but the aggregating effects of the Electoral College make that really sort of hard to tease out in terms of the, the winner-take-all votes in the states. It was a slightly um, slightly increased percentage of women, number of women in the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate. The numbers for women of color in the House have gone up slightly to 48, but the numbers of women of color in the Senate are the same and it may actually go down depending on uh, who takes Kamala Harris's place later. So. I'll leave it there. Thanks. Tell me, Mugambi, from your point of view, um, what's what's next? How is this all going to unfold from now until January 20th? Um, normally, we would sort of see uh, the same type of process. Maybe that will be the case, and, and if so, please touch upon it. But uh, will we see anything different given uh, the the sort of aftermath of the election? Um, and if President Trump does, in fact, concede, um, what will that bring? And if he tries to hang on and continues what he's been doing over the last uh, few days, what could that look like? Well, Donald Trump has prepared us to be ready for the unexpected. He's dramatically changed our perspective of what was possible politically and changed the norms of American government. So far, he's refused to concede. And the issue is how far the Republican Party and Republican officials will support Trump in his denial of the results of the election. It does not appear to most election experts that he has a good shot of winning in the courts and changing the outcome of the election. But what we're looking at is potentially him fighting the outcome till the very end and also convincing a large part of American society that this was an election that was stolen and that Biden, if he takes office, is an illegitimate president that has major implications in that it would perhaps exacerbate the tremendous polarization of American society or at least preserve the status quo. My sense is that the polarization of America will remain steadfast for the upcoming years because the root causes of polarization, namely competing understandings of facts, of the role of government, of religion, of abortion, race, immigration, and beyond, are not going anywhere in the foreseeable future. Although there were periods in American history when the country was much less polarized, polarized. that gives us Very interesting, and thank you for the insight. Um, Rob, over to you. Uh, what will a Biden-Harris administration mean for Canada and U.S. relations, which I'm sure is sort of the bottom line of a lot of people that are tuning in tonight? Absolutely, Brian. And, and uh, just building on what uh, last two have said, um, I grew up in a family that watched election results like other people watch 
the Stanley Cup or the World Series. That's the kind of family I grew up in. So I'm not going to diminish that Canadians, just like Americans, weren't enthralled watching the results come in. And the, the cliffhanger nature of it was 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 interesting. But while I want to, don't want to diminish that, I also don't want to overestimate the differences that that will cause because Canadian government, successive governments have had to deal with successive American governments and have done so uh, very well over the last several generations. Uh, the reality is we have far more in common than we have apart. And when governments get into place, um, it is hard to change things that quickly. So the reality is, as we have shown over the last four years, um, we've dealt with unexpected issues. We've dealt with the, uh, the challenge to NAFTA. We've dealt with um, a, a change, sort of look at the world, and we've done it. And uh, as we look at the next four years uh, uh, with a president like Biden, I, I think we're seeing that there will be challenges and there will be opportunities. Um, and and, and the, the goal of the Canadian government is to seize the opportunities and manage the challenges. Uh, we're lucky in that uh, as vice president and as senator, um, uh, Joe Biden knows Canada. He's been here a number of times. He has a, an understanding of the geography of the continent. And we have a vice president-elect who's lived here. Um, and uh, so that has to help us. Um, and I think that there's a, a sense of, of hopefulness about that. Um, the Trump administration presented challenges, but also we showed uh, that um, that Congress is important, um, that both the House of Representatives and the Senate are, are very important for us to have rich relationships with. It's important to have relationships with governors, not only the border state governors, but all governors, and to have labor unions that know each other and businesses that know each other. And so I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, these challenges of any administration will be put aside, and we're looking forward to it. I think the Prime Minister has been very clear in his congratulatory note that he's, he's excited about, about the opportunities that lie ahead, um, and we will continue to do that. Fantastic, Rob. Thank you. Scotty, over to you. We very curious uh, to your reaction and, and what you think is the business community in Canada's reaction uh, to the election, and, and and maybe if you don't mind, a little bit of of the overall results: the Senate, the House, the presidency. Uh, so, from your point of view, what are businesses feeling? What are businesses thinking after the results of the election? Well, thanks so much, Brian, and it's really great to be with all of you. Um, I think the business reaction is is a sigh of relief, right? Um, and it's not because business uh, is necessarily partisan. They try not to be. Business, like diplomats, have to deal with whoever is in elected um, by the people. Uh, but, but you know, there is a sigh of relief in that we know the outcome of the election now, and we know the direction. And I also think there's a um, there's a sense that the big progressive agenda that that uh, president president-elect Joe Biden articulated um, was massive, and it and uh, there are certain business opportunities in what he articulated, but there are also some concerns about what you know, like the tax structure and all of that. I'm talking about the United States for for, for a moment. Um, and, but because the Senate will either uh, flip to Democratic control or remain Republican, but either way, it'll be, and we'll know that in a runoff in Georgia uh, in January. But because it will be, it will be closely divided, and because the power is divided between um, the White House and the Congress, that serves to be a major moderating factor um, in whatever any in what any president can do. So I think the business community looks at that and says, okay. Um, we're not going to have a pendulum swing, extreme right to extreme left. Joe Biden is going to uh, play it right up the center because that's who he is. And that's what he has to do, given uh, his dance partners uh, in the United States. So I think in Canada, uh, there is a, a, a sigh of relief that there will be a return to decorum. Uh, I think there is a sense that we won't get into these punitive tariffs back and forth uh, that we've that has characterized our you know, bilateral trade policy over the last uh, three and a half years under under the Trump administration. And so these are all good things. Uh, and and we'll see what opportunities are there. The, the other thing I would just say, and this is something that we're working on, is trying to make sure that both in Canada and in the United States, uh, we resist the urge to turn inward. 
um, and to just say we can go it alone. You know, in Canada, you know, I think there's a sense of we don't we don't want to have to be dependent on the U.S. for our personal protective equipment or things like that. And the truth is, we really are dependent on each other. We're really integrated uh, with each other from a business point of view and from a you know societal point of view. And so. Uh, you know, I think businesses are going to help reinforce that message that we're in this together. We've got to get through this uh, god-awful health situation we're in, and then we've got to get through the economic recovery together. And that's uh, th those are the conversations that I'm having with uh, with CEOs and business leaders in, on both sides of the border, Brian. Well, glad to hear it. It's always good to hear that the business community is feeling a little bit of an uptick of morale. That's great. So the next question, we're going to go to Mugambi and Melissa, because I'd be curious from both of your perspectives uh, to the answer uh, of this question. So starting at least in 2016, maybe before, but at least from my point of view, it, it seems to have been really the catalyst, uh, the, the point that we, we saw the catalyst of, of a type of change within the electorate. Uh, the U.S. presidential election in 2016 um, was interesting, to say the least. Uh, What's happening with the U.S. electorate? What, what, what's, what's going on that uh, Mugambi, to the point that you made earlier on, that you can have somebody like uh, Donald Trump doing things quite differently? So what, what's happening with the electorate to allow that to happen and to have the sort of maybe uh, abnormal uh, type of, uh, of uh, behavior and, and, uh, and uh, presidency that we've seen with uh, Donald Trump? To understand Trump's election, we must go much farther into the past and understand the root causes of America's polarization. In the last uh, three or four decades, there has been a phenomenon that political scientists have called asymmetric polarization, namely that the Republican Party in the United States has moved far more to the right then the Democratic Party has moved to the left on many issues. And this gradual radicalization of the Republican Party culminated in the election of Donald Trump. But to understand this, we also have to look at dimensions of American exceptionalism, which is the notion that America is an exception, for better or worse, compared to other Western democracies. And there are a whole host of issues that are far more divisive in America than in Canada, Europe, or elsewhere in the West, or elsewhere in the wider world. And these help explain why America is so divided right now, and why Trump was elected, and why American government is so dysfunctional, because there are many more sources and forces of polarization which make issues like healthcare which is not controversial elsewhere in the industrialized world, or guns or abortion, dramatically more uh, divisive in America than in practically all other developed nations. It's fascinating, and, and to your point, uh, something that has probably been building up and just manifested itself in 2016 and, and probably to some extent in the last uh, few days as well. Melissa, over to you. Very curious as to what your perspective would be. I would agree. Seeds of 2016 were very long term. And one of the structural issues we need to note is the, the weird little factor that in the US, the state legislatures draw the House districts. And so, you know, the vast majority of state legislatures and governorships have been Republican since 2000. This was then played out in 2010 when the Republicans adopted the red map strategy. And now, I mean, Democrats thought that they were gonna win a majority, or not majority, but that they were gonna retake some key state legislatures in, in this past election didn't happen, which actually puts Democrats in a rather weak position for the next, well, certainly for the midterm, because the 2022 election will be the first one where we see the effects of the redistricting. We don't have large enough Democratic you know, majorities and, or minorities in some of those states to really impact. I mean, there were a couple of states where the, there was a significant enough percentage elected to, to um, stop governors from vetoing, but still it's, it's not enough. Um, <clears throat> the other thing is that in some of, the, some of the very famous feminist political scientists who research the role of the gender gap, basically, and Kathleen Dolan from University of Wisconsin is one of them who basically says that 
the gender gap is actually affected more by men, and it's not really by usually the issues that are thought to be women's issues. It's about the size of the welfare state, the you know market and economy. And I would just say, I guess I disagree slightly with my colleague, Professor Jouet. I'd say that a lot of these issues are equally contentious. In Europe, for example, I happen to be writing a book about Theresa May and Brexit. Um, and so we know that immigration and the politics of, I guess we could say false issues where a, a valence issue stands in for an economic issue or something like that is used equally in the US as well as in Europe. Um, some of the Trump voters from 2016 were strong Trump voters, again, the lower educated, um, particularly white women and white men. Um, Latinos and African-Americans did not go to Biden in as big numbers as they actually did before Obama. So there, there's a lot of fascinating stuff to look at in terms of who turned out to vote for whom. And yes, and the issue of issues, <laughs> the issue of issues, polarization was enormous, like name any issue. And 90% of the people who voted for Biden said, yeah, you know, COVID has been handled terribly. 90% of the people who voted for Trump say, no, it was fine. So there is enormous polarization as reflected by the institutions. Well, Brian, Brian, can I just jump in on the on those two observations uh, for a second? Absolutely, yes, please do. Just, just lest we 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 be filled with doom and gloom about the U.S. and 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 the trends, I, I just want to, uh, and I'd be interested in, in the colleagues' reaction. But but you look at the state of Georgia. I I came up politically in Georgia and you know lived there and worked in politics in 1992, which is the last time a Democrat won. We also had a Senate runoff that year. Democrats lost the runoff, uh, but won the presidency. Um, and what I would say is Georgia went for Joe Biden this time, or they went against Donald Trump this time. Trump was repudiated in the state of Georgia. That's dramatic. And in two years, I think we'll see Stacey Abrams uh, mount her second run for governor. And I think her chances, if I had to guess uh, today, are, are quite good. Um, she had a very close run for governor a couple of years ago, uh, and when it didn't, when when she didn't win, she went to work. And so, um, people in Georgia, Democrats in Georgia, and progressives in Georgia, um, haven't haven't had this kind of uh, success in in a, in a long time. And so, I think that bodes well not only for Georgia but for places like Texas and other places that ha haven't seen uh, Democratic leadership in a while. So so anyway, I'm not disagreeing at all with anything that's been said. I just wanted to give one little glimmer of hope uh, that uh, you know uh, there 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 are some uh, there are some trends that are for, from a progressive point of view um, you know sort of positive. Well, Scotty, it's, it's not sorry, it's 9:30 p.m. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, no, um, go ahead Melissa. That just that, that, yeah, most people are in fact saying that Stacey Abrams and her network was the cause of the lot of the Democratic transitional votes in uh, Georgia. That's Texas, right. That's, yeah, Stacey, I'm not so sure about progressivism there, but yeah, sorry. <laughs> Oh, that was fantastic. Great conversation. Scotty, I just want to say it's 9.30 p.m. here in Shidag Bridge, New Brunswick. So I, you know, I'm going to go to bed right after this webinar. So a little hope before I go to bed is fantastic. Rob, everybody has made some interesting comments and I'm going to sort of pull some of them together to ask a question of you. And, and the question is quite simple. Is, is the federal government here in Canada going to change its strategy at all, its approach at all? Uh, should it change or should it just basically stay the same? And and pulling from the comments, it's just it's just fascinating, uh, probably quite complex for the government, where you have polarization, as Mugambi was talking about. Uh, you you have, as uh, as was pointed out as well, the uh, state uh, states seem to be uh, leaning towards the Republicans. You have a Congress that is going to potentially moderate the Biden Harris administration, as was pointed out by both Melissa and Scotty. So, with that in mind, um, does the approach stay the same? you have to change it? And, and if so, what does it look like? Um, I want to start by saying, you know, uh, uh, politicians, we, we usually like to talk. I'm finding actually Melissa, Scotty, and Mugambi uh, far more interesting than a politician. So uh, that's that's where I'm starting. I'm in reflecting on, on where we're at. It, there's a couple things that are in my head. One is that the last uh, three and a half, four years, 
have changed the way we approach the United States. We've had to do things differently. At one point during NAFTA, uh, we counted out, uh, one of my jobs as Parliamentary Secretary was to, to, to be watching, you know, the way we were sending uh, MPs and senators and committees and groups uh, to fan out. There were 276 encounters at one point of MPs and senators meeting their counterparts. Um, it wasn't left to a, an administration to an executive kind of level. It, we had to get down and get into knowing each other better. I think that was new. That was it was not radically different, but it was it was a, 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 we had we had changed. I don't think we'll go back now. And I think what we we've, we've learned is that um, the complexities of our world, whether it's COVID nineteen, uh, the health crisis of that, or the economic crisis of it, uh, climate change, and the the, the continent we share, um, business uh, being robust, and between our our two economies being critical for. I mean. It's actually critical that we keep reminding Americans that we're their best customer, and and that in state after state after state, uh, region after region, they 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 need us and, and want us. So we're going to do that, but I think we've tweaked the way we do it already, and I don't think we'll go back on that. I think we are going to have a robust approach. What I think Canada Canada will do, whether it's on a trade issue. Uh, whether it's on a uh, climate issue, is we'll try to bring facts to the table. And uh, we're hopeful that those facts will be heard and those facts will be added to the mix of decision-making. So I, I think that's, that's gonna be an important approach we do. Um, but the other thing I would say is we have a minority government in Canada. And when you've got a house um, and, and or a, a Congress and a president that are of different parties, that that is what ends up happening. It's a little bit like having a minority Westminster system. You have to be big. You have to uh, you have to spread out and do a lot of activities uh, because politics is unpredictable. So so we we I think our our approach will be much the same as it's been but it'll be better than it was 10 years ago. I think uh, we've recognized that. The last point I would put out is that the bilateral relationship is critical, of course, but the US role in the world is something that Canada values. Um, it is something that we're, we need to be multilateralists in Canada. We, very few things we can do on our own. So we draw in Commonwealth partners, we draw in La Francophonie, we, we count on leadership from the U.S. And as we look at these next four years, I see very rich opportunities to, to build on things like COVID-19 or climate change. I, I'm, I'm excited about it. Well, that's good. Hope, excitement, this is good. For, for this late in Atlantic Canada, I'm certainly feeling it. So we have some phenomenal questions coming from the crowd. So we're gonna dive into a few, if you don't mind. We're still gonna try to divvy it up. So I apologize if I don't give it to the right person. But I'm sure you'll all do very well. Uh, Mugambi, we'll start with you if it's okay. We have an interesting uh, question here. Uh, conservative politics have been changed since Trump became president, even in Canada, this audience member believes. What do you see happening to conservative politics after Trump? I'm not sure I agree with the premise that there's been a big change in American conservative politics uh, since Trump. I would say that the evolution of the Republican Party since the Reagan revolution has enabled the rise of Donald Trump with the growing radicalization of the party. If you look at uh, the following example, if on September 10th, 2001, the US president have claimed that he could detain anyone forever incommunicado if that person were accused of terrorism and so it also tortured them, people would have said that that was totally unfathomable in American society. Yet this is the position that George W. Bush uh, adopted uh, with the support of a sizable segment of conservative uh, America. And that reflects how the erosion of norms in American uh, society and the challenges to democratic principles have uh, much longer roots. They did not start with uh, Donald Trump or even with George W. Bush. And um, therefore, when you look at the situation uh, in uh, the U.S., it did not start with Trump. It may not end with him, 
And also I would say that the situation in Canada is quite different, uh, just like it is different in other parts of um, the Western world, because there are more sources and forces of polarization in the United States. I agree with Professor Hausman's prior comment that there is also strong division in Europe over questions like immigration that help precipitate uh, Brexit. But it's just far more issues that uh, Donald Trump has been able to harp on, such as uh, abortion, which is much more divisive in America. There's a much more uh, prominent subculture of anti-intellectualism in American society that has facilitated the spread of disinformation. If you look at the question of race, it's much more divisive in American history, partly because America has historically been the Western democracy was by far the highest share of racial and ethnic minorities. Guns are very divisive in America, the highest number of guns per capita in the world, the highest incarceration rate in the world as well, the only Western democracy to still have the death penalty. There are many more bases for polarization in America and that's why conservatism in Canada or Western Europe, by and large, is very different. And that's why Trumpism may not come to other parts of the West, at least in the foreseeable future. Well, thank you for that, Mugambi. Melissa, we'll go, we'll go over to you. Here's an interesting question uh, from an audience member. Canada has adopted a lot of policies that even some Democrats would consider socialist. But they work here, here as in Canada. Do U.S. Democrats look to Canada for policy? And I will add to that, uh, should the U.S. Democrats be looking to Canada for policy? Um, I'll answer that, but I just have to add that um, the Conservatives elected 45 anti-abortion MPs in 2019. So I would politely disagree that abortion is any less of an issue in Canada than it is in the United States. Um, I can't think of one single socialist policy that Canada has. I know it's a nice little trope that U.S. conservatives like to use. And as I say to my classes, Biden doesn't have a socialist bone in his body. Um, I mean, I know that people talked about, you know, the national energy policy of decades ago as being quote unquote socialist. But sure, Democrats have lots to learn from Canadian policies. I mean, policies of inclusion and tolerance and diversity. Um, also, of course, um, party support of women um, and, yeah, having, you know, very high profile women um, in the government, in the cabinet, those sorts of things are all great. So, but in terms of socialism, I, you know, I just don't see it as a strong force in either country, to be honest. Okay, fair enough. Interesting. This is good. We're having some some constructive debate amongst the panelists. We're not always accepting the premise of the questions from the audience, but this is good. This is exactly what the Pearson Center wants. Scotty, over to you. The um, and, and this is a question from the audience, uh, and, and they write, the president, president has damaged so many relationships with allies of the U.S., including Canada. This is obviously coming from the audience member. What is the first thing that needs to be done to mend these relationships, especially here in Canada? Uh, well, I accept the premise of that particular question, and um, and I would say that you know the 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 first move, uh, be, besides the the president elect um, having you know having this return to decorum, um, the first move was made by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. You know, he immediately uh, congratulated uh, the vice president elect. He wanted to be first. He was. Ireland beat him to the punch by just a little bit on Twitter, uh, but the first foreign phone call that the vice president-elect uh, received uh, was willing to take uh, was from Prime Minister Trudeau, and so there is a real opening there. Um, and uh, I, I just think that um, recognizing that uh, we have to work together to rebuild some of the global institutions that help things function like the World Health Organization, like the World Trade Organization, some of the, you know, uh, the, the giving 
confidence to the NATO alliance that that we really are there for each other, um, and we're not going to hold hold the alliance up hostage. God, you know, God forbid, um, for for level of dues that people pay. Although everybody needs to pay their fair share. So I think those kind of conversations are are, are very beneficial and will serve to repair the not only the bilateral relationship as between Canada and the United States, but also uh, the way we take on world challenges together, because there are some big ones out there, and it is much better for us to lock arms uh, and take them, you know, take on the world than it is for us to be looking at each other and figuring out how to best each other. Very interesting, Scotty. Both yourself and Rob have, have now mentioned uh, the, the multilateralism and, and multilateral organization. So maybe, Rob, um, what would we like to see here in Canada if we were to really sort of uh, ask, even uh, strongly encourage the Biden-Harris uh, administration in terms of, of what organizations we need them to step up on right away, what um, maybe international agreements uh, would we want to see them act on? So, so talk to us a little bit about what we would want, uh, what the federal government will want to try to push with the Biden-Harris administration to have uh, them be in lockstep a little bit more with Canada than maybe has been the case for the last four years? I think the reality is that we've, uh, we have been promoting some ideas around uh, the world trade, uh, the whole trade uh, regime, and, and we have an Ottawa group that is trying to, uh, to reform uh, world trade. And uh, I think that, that the United States should be part of that. I think that uh, finding a way to um, bring the best out of everybody's economy, we will all do better in our world if, if we can do that. I think, um, obviously, we're looking forward to um, uh, renewing a partnership in the Paris Accord. Um, and and uh, Mr. Biden has said that he clearly supports the Paris Accord. And I think that is, is, is a very important step for our whole planet. I think um, when it comes to COVID-19, um, the reality is, I have said this for years, and that's kind of the clergy in me saying that um, no one is okay until everyone's okay. But when you get to a pandemic, it's particularly important uh, because until a virus is eradicated everywhere, it's not eradicated anywhere. Uh, so we all become susceptible to illness. And that goes the same with our economic recovery. So we'll be looking for, for partnership with, with uh, the United States to, to help us in the poorest countries of the world, whether it's uh, 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 small island states that have had huge, huge um, uh, downfalls in their revenue because of tourism and because of remittances and those things, uh, whether it's uh, the, the international financial institutions trying to find ways to build back better, uh, whether that's uh, in countries that may not have had as much exposure to the virus as we've had in the Western uh, countries, but the economic impact is huge. And so I, I think we'll be looking, looking for um, partnerships in that. Our multilateral systems are lumpy. They're, they don't work easily or well. Uh, at times they're imperfect as we are imperfect. Um, but we count on the G7 and the G20 to, to, to provide leadership and, and having the United States as core to that leadership is, is critical to everyone's well-being. And uh, there's also, I could get into military alliances such as NATO, but other operations where we're countering terrorism, uh, say in Syria, um, where we're trying to build stability in Afghanistan, uh, all of those parts of our world where we want um, uh, peace and uh, and uh, dignity and food and health, uh, we we need to be there. And it's there's not it's not going to be magic. It's not going to be overnight. Um, but I think I think that we will continue to 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 help with that. And um, I'm I'm hopeful. Hey, hey, Brian, if I could just piggyback on that for just a moment, I think I agree with the sentiment entirely um, about needing to be there for the world and 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 helping. But, you know, as the, the two former U.S. U.N. ambassadors who I've friends with and done programs with that you would think would be opposites actually have the same view. Samantha Power, who I was just speaking with, and Kelly Kraft. So Obama's U.S. U.N. and, and Trump's U.S. U.N. both talk about how the U.S. is the largest donor. Um, to the UN, um, and the second largest is China. China is putting a lot of money behind its global 
ambitions. And so it's going to be important for countries like Canada, if I might say it, and other countries around the world to lead not only with moral authority and with good desires and, and you know, sort of the right ideas, but also to get in there with resources, because you can't just leave it up to the, to, to the U.S. and China. Um, you, you know, if, if you want to have an impact, uh, it's going to be important to um, to step up in a very serious way wherever you decide to do so with with money. And that's expensive. I mean, convincing Americans that it makes sense to spend money on, you know, foreign projects is difficult. And it's not all that different. I would I would posit in Canada. If I'm interested, yeah, of course, Mugami, go ahead. The entire world, of course, is watching what's happening in the United States. What is striking is that international opinion overwhelmingly favored Biden over Trump. But if you look back uh, in the prior election, so were uh, so was Hillary Clinton strongly favored by uh, public opinion in Canada and abroad, and so was uh, Barack Obama. Uh, strongly supported uh, over uh, Mitt Romney and uh, John McCain in the, the prior elections. So that shows how, uh, what I mentioned before, that conservative America is largely an outlier in uh, the modern Western world, uh, given that um, um, conservatives and liberals in other Western democracies tend to identify uh, much more with the U.S. Democratic Party uh, than with the Republican Party. And uh, another thing to add with regard to the longer view, of course, Trump has challenged um, the European Union and called for its uh, dismantlement. And he's also uh, called into question uh, U.S. Uh, alliances and praised uh, dictators like uh, Vladimir Putin. And that raises, of course, questions about uh, the U.S. leadership uh, in the world. And that's a recurrent question. That's not often mentioned. but. During the presidency of George W. Bush, uh, we tend to forget that uh, there were often calls for the U.S. to reaffirm its uh, role as a leader in democracy and human rights. And so uh, was the case also during uh, the Vietnam War. So who knows what the future will bring, but it seems to be a recurrent issue for America in its relationship to the wider world. Uh, great additions. Thank you, Mugami. And and Scotty, I, I'm going to go to you, Melissa, but I actually want to hear from Mugambi and Scotty on this question as well, because Rob sort of touched upon, uh, not in this context, but I think touched upon some things that he would like to see from the administration, such as uh, obviously the Paris Accord, which is I, I, I'm not supposed to participate, but that's certainly something that I'm hopeful, which seems to be the word of this webinar, so I'm hopeful will, will, will be the case. What would you, Melissa, and then I'll go to, to Scotty and Mugambi as well, what signals would you like to see from the Biden-Harris administration, whether it be in the transition or in the early days of their administration? What would be some of the key things you would like to see them speak to or, or even more importantly, take action on? Melissa. In, in terms of Canada or just in general? In general. Um, obviously, I'm sure a lot of people are wondering uh, the impact it would have on Canada, but the world is important to Canada too. So it, really anything that you deem uh, important. Right. Well, I mean, there are a couple of, I guess, thorny issues going on domestically and, of course, regarding Canada. We know that the prime minister phoned Nancy Pelosi as well, and I think they had a really good discussion. But also, of course, there's anxiety about energy and, you know, the pipelines, um, because you can't really campaign as a climate change guy and then um, support the pipeline. So that's going to be an issue. I think there's some people are saying there's going to be pressure within Congress from the squad um, in terms of, well, issues regarding race, issues regarding inequality, and of course, the um, Israeli-Palestinian issue. So again, not directly pulling in Canada, but the U.S. as a world leader and having to deal with its internal conflicts. Thank you for that, Melissa. Scotty, over to you. So. Uh, what I'd like to see uh, from uh, the Biden-Harris administration is, uh, other than addressing the pandemic in a very serious way, which is which is incredibly important, obviously, um, they've got they've got to save the economy. Joe Biden thinks of his model as 
uh, as FDR. He went to Warm Springs, Georgia, late in the campaign, uh, and and so I want him to have a big, bold agenda. I don't want him to tamp down uh, all of the things, all of the tools at the U.S. government's disposal uh, to to save the economy. I think that's going to be really important for uh, the U.S., for Canada, and for the world. Um, I just want to differ a little bit uh, from Melissa in in one thing, though. The, this notion that you quote can't campaign as a climate guy um, and then support pipelines. I think what Joe Biden did very well in this campaign is talk clearly and directly about how important uh, uh, his commitment is to sustainability and to a transition uh, to a low carbon future. But he also uh, didn't say he's against all fracking. Right, so he understands that hydraulic fracturing is um, a, a technology that is used, you, you know, in 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 this transition. Um, so I think there's a way to thread the needle. We also know that, um, you know safe modern pipelines or a transportation system where you can make real progress as long as you're still on oil and gas, which which we are for uh, for some time is is in the development of those resources and in the use of those resources. So it's, you know, from the from the planet's point of view, pipelines don't um, you know, don't hurt the planet. It's it's how you how you extract the resource, how you process it, how you use it, and what your transition plan looks like. So anyway, I think Joe Biden, as the as the radical moderate that he is, uh, will be able to do make a lot of progress uh, on on environmental issues, meaningful progress. He'll be able to undo some of the more challenging uh, regulations uh, that Trump put into place. Uh, and, and Biden will be able to reverse those immediately by executive order. And by the way, I'll just say that a number of the moves that Trump made on uh, environmental policy with respect to the fossil fuel industry were not welcomed by the fossil fuel industry. You know, uh, coal is not back. Uh, he didn't save coal. Uh, utilities are transitioning away from coal and into renewables. And that is something that happened over the last four years. So uh, anyway, um, I, I think there's a lot uh, a lot that can be done to, to save the economy, do it in a sustainable way. Um, but but you got you got to deal with the pandemic first. If I could just jump in. Oh, sorry. I just wanted to say Biden's life will be a lot easier if there were a Democratic Senate, which I'm not so sure of. But We'll I think it would be harder. I think the bar goes way up if the Senate's Democratic. Sorry, sorry, we're getting into the first affirmative rebuttal here, Brian. But if if oh, if the I, Senate goes Democratic uh, in Georgia on January fifth, then the progressives. So so then uh, Biden will run the table. You'd have a Democratic House, Democratic Senate. Biden and Harris in the White House, and the progressive movement will say, okay, let's do everything while we can. Let's strike while the iron's hot. And now, of course, what we know is the Senate could be Democratic, but you still have Republicans you got to play ball with. And uh, so, so uh, you know, it will be hard for, harder for him, I think, for Biden, because expectations go through the roof. Anyway. I don't know. It's all about Mitch McConnell for me. <laughs> Fantastic conversation is great. So Mugambi, same question that I had a few moments ago. If you could sort of pick a thing or two that you would really like to see the Biden-Harris administration signal to or or action, what would it be? Well, with regards to climate change, uh, my concern is that a Biden-Harris administration would face two major problems. First, climate change is a much more controversial issue in the U.S. and other Western democracies because in places like Canada or Western Europe, the divide is often about what to do about climate change. In the U.S., there's a more fundamental divide over, over whether climate change is even a fact, whether it's a myth or a hoax. And uh, in my book, I document a lot of declarations by Republican leaders in the run-up to Trump's election, uh, claiming that climate change is a total myth uh, fabricated by know-it-all scientists. Uh, there's uh, more recognition of climate change among uh, Republicans in recent years, but this suggests that there will be uh, a lot of pushback uh, from Republicans toward whatever uh, Biden would propose. And the second obstacle for the Biden and Harris um, presidency and vice presidency would be that the U.S. is the Western democracy where lobbying by moneyed interests has the most clouts and the polluting industries 
will strongly resist whatever uh, environmental measures would be implemented or proposed uh, in, uh, by, by the U.S. Uh, federal government. And that's what is often a big discrepancy between what Democrats support as a matter of rhetoric, saying fighting climate change, and what they do in practice, uh, lobbying plays a big role in that. Thank you for, for that, Mugami. So con conscious of time, we're going to get to the lightning round here. So Rob, I'm going to go to you because I have a question that I'm really curious and I want to give you this opportunity because I think it's important. So to premiers, provinces, territories, to mayors, to cities, to uh, other uh, subnationals, to the business community, to labor, to whatever other group, what message would you have to them on how they can help ensure that we strengthen the relationship between Canada and the U.S. Uh, given the Biden-Harris administration? Uh, I'll weigh in on that. It's, um, I live in Midtown Toronto, but I grew up in Sault Ste. Marie. And Sault Ste. Marie is a border city between Ontario, Northern Ontario and the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. And as a kid, every day I watched trucks go across the International Bridge, back and forth taking uh, materials from both our sides and to recognize our, 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 our provincial leaders, our municipal leaders, our business leaders, our union leaders need to recognize that while we do look to Asia, while we do look to Europe, while we are expanding our trade horizons, we are, are totally interdependent with the American economy. And, and what is good for business in, in one will be good for business in the other. And we're going to have to find a way to help the Americans understand again and again that we're their biggest and best customer. That, you know, before COVID-19, $2 billion a day going across that border, two-way traffic every day. Um, finding ways to, to, to get to COVID-19. We couldn't have done it without cooperation between our, our two countries. Um, I, I think that what I would talk to governors about and provincial premiers and territorial leaders would be um, that sense that this can be win-win. It's not a zero-sum game, it's a win-win game uh, to recognize that we need each other, uh, we're each other's best markets, and we'll continue to do that. And then together with, uh, with, with Mexico, obviously in our, in our integrated trade, we can, we can compete in the world. And um, I, I think that uh, that message of going alone is not going to work in either country. And, uh, and, and we do that. And uh, that's what Scotty does every day of our life. And if remind business leaders of that, um, I've seen our committee do that. And it's, um, it's something that we all need to take on and say this is we're not enemies in this this, this continent we're friends and uh we may have differences uh but let's get to work fantastic this is a long question so i'm gonna go really quickly mugambi melissa maybe 30 seconds each i'd like the two of you to talk to this one many and this is the question uh, sort of word for word many people assume that trump's toxic rhetoric would doom him with minority groups but he seems to have done much better than expected with them especially certain Latino communities in Florida and Texas. Are left and center-left parties in the U.S. and Canada too complacent about certain support? And do they particularly risk alienating them in the current environment, which seems to emphasize identity politics on the left as much as on the right? So, uh, Mugambi, we'll go to you first. 30 seconds if you can. Melissa, uh, to you after that. The notion that Trump has uh, made uh, a lot of headway with minorities is overstated. Minorities tend to overwhelmingly support the Democratic Party and they have uh, for a very long time. It's not just uh, the black vote, but also uh, Asian Americans and uh, Latinx uh, people tend to support the, the Democrats. So here, the bottom line is that the Trump administration has drawn much closer uh, to uh, white nationalism than anyone would have expected and has supported a xenophobic uh, uh, agenda. And that is perhaps what is radicalizing people uh, on the other side of the spectrum, at least as part of a vicious circle insofar as identity politics uh, may play a role in the uh, polarization of American society. Thank you, Mugambi. Melissa? Um, no, I don't think the Democrats are or the center left parties, liberals, I don't think anybody's complacent. Um, 
again, yes, minorities, racial minorities do often favor the Democratic Party, but by a lower margin this time around. And if you've seen some of the ads that got played in Miami where Biden was called a chavista, and we know there was, you know, clear appeal to the Venezuelan and Cubano expatriate communities. But what's bizarre is Miami elected a, a woman Democratic mayor. So, you know, all this stuff about getting, you know, these voters to, to vote for Trump. But then on the other hand, a woman Democratic mayor of Miami. So go figure. It's, it's very mixed and we'll be teasing it out for a long time. Brian, Brian, can I add two words? Of course. Kamala Harris. And the reality is I was out the other day and I saw a little girl, a little person of color, look at her mother and say, is she the president? Meaning Kamala Harris. And her mother said, not yet. And, and just for that to happen on our continent has to tell us there is something going on. And, you know, we can talk about identity politics, we can talk about divide, but there's something there. Uh, I don't want to put the weight of perfection on her shoulders. I, you know, she doesn't have to be perfect, um, but just being in that office is going to make a difference. Fantastic. Um, Andrew's not going to like this, but I want to ask Scotty one last question. Uh, and I, I know she can do it succinctly. Um, what is the future for Trump? Will he run again? Uh, will he still have a stronghold on the Republican Party? I'm curious, Scotty, as I know you know the system quite well. So what do you think? Uh, don't know about the future for Trump himself. I think he wants to start a, an online media network to go after Fox, which is sort of ironic. Um, but the the future of, of of Trump politics and Trumpism, I think that you know who will run for president in 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 four years? Will it be uh, one of his kids, somebody with the last name of Trump, or will it be a reaction against Trump in the Republican Party? Will it be a Tom Cotton, Nikki Haley, Ben Sass? Um, or somebody like that. And there will be a battle um, inside the Republican Party like you have never seen because Trump is awfully influential still. Um, but it'll also depend, I keep coming back to it, on what happens in Georgia, what happens in the Senate if uh, if Melissa's best buddy Mitch McConnell gets to be majority leader or minority leader, uh, it's still a powerful, powerful role. Um, and so that will depend, you know, that, that will have a lot to do with the two. If I could also just add one quick, um, parting shot here. Um, Rob talked about how all of the work that's been done with US uh, governors and mayors and all of that, and it's all true, and we've got to keep doing that. And I will tell you, just my organization, Canadian American Business Council, is getting together next Wednesday, November 18th. Everybody should come, free open to the public, stay the relationship. But my point here is, we have been inviting a lot of US politicians and Canadians and notables to come and appear and be part of it. And in the US, it's like pushing on an open door. It used to be you had to explain why Canada is relevant to them, even though it should be obvious. And now we've got all sorts of uh, notables from around the US where all we did was send an email and immediately they said, yes, I'm in. And so that's a result of all of the hard work and the awareness building over the last few years. So there's nothing like a near-death experience to get you focused. Uh, and with the NAFTA and everything else and Trump, you know, it's pretty bad, but, but a lot of work's been done. And I think that's a positive. Thank you so much, Scotty. Andrew, over to you. Thank you for indulging us. Oh, thank you, Brian. That was a really fascinating discussion. Um, these are such un uncertain and changing times, and I think what, what all of you did uh, today was really to inform us and educate us about the, the, the myriad factors at play, uh, both within the United States, how they affect Canada, and how they affect the whole world. So we live in, in very exciting, changing times. Thank you for that. Thank you, Brian, for your wonderful uh, moderating. Uh, Scotty Greenwood, Professor Melissa Hoffman, and Professor Mogambi Joué, thank you for sharing your extensive insights on, on what's happening in America and how it affects us. And Rob Oliphant, a special thank you to you uh, for, for being here. I, I'm sure there is much you will want to take back to, to your government colleagues uh, from the discussion today. So th thank you all of us for, for being here. And, and, and if anybody needs dispensation, they, I, I'm, I'm happy to share. Uh, an email with uh, your, your email with them. Um, the same thing if you can't find uh, and go to sleep at night uh, because you're worried about things you need you, you need a calming voice of, uh, of of divine intervention Rob can certainly help us with that but I think I hope those days are over. 
Um, anyhow, to, to the audience, I just want to uh, thank you for being here for your questions and tell you we've got a few webinars coming up in the remaining weeks of, of this calendar year. Uh, they will address uh, issues such as this the she session, uh, isotopes as a growing sector in Canada and how they fit into the um, economic rebuilding, uh, basic income and healthcare. With that, uh, please join us. Keep, keep in touch with our website for for, uh, for for information on those webinars, and certainly go to YouTube and 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 see today's webinar and any of our past ones. With that, thank you, everyone. I'm just leaning back. Since the audience can't, uh, since you can't hear the audience applause, I will ask each of each of us to to uh, applause for each other as we chime out. So. <laughs> hey. Excellent. Thank you so much, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hey, Andrew.